Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today we're going to be concluding our podcast series on inerrancy. And uh, this is kind of a grab bag of um, everything that I wanted to say about inerrancy, but felt like I couldn't say until we had an introductory podcast opening the issue and then going through the Chicago Statement to understand exactly what we're talking about when we talk about inerrancy. Um, these are, um, yeah, kind of, kind of my heart and also the tricks that I've found for, um, for maintaining some sense of inerrancy, uh, without being an, you know, being a stereotypical ostrich hiding my head in the sand. Uh, I'm aware of the information that's out there. I'm continually learning more things about, um, about how the New Testament was written, about how the Old Testament was written. Um, and I'm becoming more and more aware of the human aspect of, of the Bible. And yet I still cling, and I still firmly believe, um, I'm not just clinging on by my fingernails, but I, I, I very firmly believe that the whole Bible was um, divinely inspired and is, is useful and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, is sharper than a two-edged sword dividing two so uh, body and spirit soul and matter um it's it's what i use is what everything is built on and and if you listen to my other podcasts and how i deal with with other issues you'll you'll really see that this is this is the bedrock of uh of my life and of my teaching so how do we do this how do we kind of cling to um inerrancy in spite of you know the century and a half of information we have from Christianity being studied from a liberal or a secular perspective. Um, before we go there, uh, I have a little section here. It was going to be a whole podcast, and then I thought, well, I can just sneak this into another podcast. Um, kind of the agony of inerrancy. Um, should in- inerrancy still be used? Uh, and this is, there, there's a real pain aspect to this. There's a, it hurts people. Um, and, uh, because inerrancy sometimes is attached to the word heresy. Uh, if you don't, if you don't believe that the Bible is inerrant, then you're a heretic or you're not one of us. And we noticed that the Chicago Statement very graciously and I think correctly said you don't have to believe necessarily strictly in inerrancy the way that we do to still be a Christian. But this is a hugely important issue, and um, a lot of a lot of organizations and churches would say, well, you need to believe in inerrancy the way it's spelled out in the Chicago Statement or a similar statement. To work with us, so should churches still use uh, and and schools and, and seminaries still use words like inerrancy to say either you're in or out, either you're one of us or not? Um, I would really say yes, and this comes from you know I went to you know I grew up in the church, wanted to pursue this, wanted to serve God with my life. So what did I do? I went to Bible school. And the Bible school that I went to was kind of what I expected it to be, uh, very Bible-based, very, you know, just telling me what the Bible says and how to apply it to my life and how to preach it. Went to seminary, and they're very um, neo-Orthodox, as we talked about in the first podcast from the Chicago Statement, um, Chicago Statement number one uh, podcast. And um, that was new, uh, and I embraced it for a while at back in 2007, 2008, and it kind of, I was like, all right, maybe I can be emergent and kind of use Karl Barth and kind of be postmodern and all this stuff. And and eventually I kind of let all that stuff go, came back to an Augustinian, Calvinist, you know, kind of standard re- reformed Protestant theology. And um, I felt a real distance starting to grow between me and my professors. Uh, and they still, I mean, were gracious to me, but it was like, this isn't what we teach here. Like this isn't really, you know, um, I, I kind of stumbled my way through my exit exam. Uh, didn't get very good marks, really felt, um, an air of condescension, at least from one of my professors, like your ideas are really out to lunch, like very bizarre, um, ideas that you have. And I was just a standard evangelical Protestant, like many of you listening. And I kind of felt like, look, I paid you guys, you know, I spent seven years of my life very sacrificially studying for my master's, um, working full time and, and trying to do a family and studying here and, you know, gave them, I mean, I could have bought a house for the amount of 
of uh, money I spent on that. And I felt kind of a little bit uh, ripped off, um, kind of like it was a bait and switch. Like, you know, you, you drive up to the school, there's a big Bible out front and it's like, says the word of our God shall stand forever. And you're like, oh yeah, sure. This is, um, and their, their doctrinal statement is like, we believe in an RNC and it's like, all right, this is a good, solid evangelical school. And, but when you, you know, when I studied there, I mean, we had, remember one class, especially where the teachers were like, this is why I don't believe in inerrancy. And they laid it out why inerrancy was, you know, kind of a ridiculous idea. And so I think, and there's two sides of that. I mean, you do want people to be able to follow their beliefs and their consciences and not be like, well, my theology can is bound by a paycheck and I can't follow the truth where I see it. So there, there is that aspect of it. But at the same time, the people that are writing those checks and the students that are going to schools, um, they want a certain product. And I felt like I didn't really get that product. Um, I did, like, it was a very, it was a, an experience that really grew me a lot because, especially towards the end of my time there, it was like I... I was forming my beliefs in, not with my professors, but kind of in intention with my professors. And so I really had to uh, back up my beliefs and really be like, am I sure this is what I believe? You know, it was a really challenging, stretching, pushing time for me. But at the same time, I kind of feel like if I had gone to, you know, just a more evangelical, conservative Calvinist school, uh, I wouldn't have had to do so much work on my own to figure out... um, presuppositional apologetics and philosophy and and evidentialism and some of the things that I've learned on my own, um, it, I, I would have gone further. So th- there is that aspect of it. Of um, I think it's fair for institutions and churches to say, hey, you got to believe in inerrancy. And if people want to kind of wiggle their way around that to say, no, I mean, inerrancy means something. This is what it means. Now, that being said, the other side of that and it was kind of like an, within a few month period where I was really frustrated at my school for kind of bait and switch stuff. And um, then I wanted to join a mission to uh, go overseas and, and serve God as a teacher. And um, they said, okay, well, here's our doctrinal statement. And lo and behold, one of the first things on there, as with virtually all um, you know, churches and parachurch organizations, is the question, do you believe in inerrancy? and the inspiration of the whole of of scriptures and i was like well i don't know after studying at school and and they presented all these arguments you know um i don't know what i believe and i i felt really caught like i i want to give my life to god and yet um can i believe in inerrancy um can i sign this in good conscience um because i knew there were you know places where within the gospels, you know, there's the, the, did the, did the rooster crow one time or two times or three times before Peter, you know, went off and cried in the, in, after he betrayed Jesus, was there one angel at the tomb or two, you know, there's, there's apparent conflicts here. There's places where the old Testament doesn't seem to line up with world history. Uh, there's the whole thing about creation, evolution. Um, there's all these kind of objections. And I was like, well, you know, I ha- I don't know the answer to all these questions. I haven't fi- finished figuring all this stuff out. Um, how can I, how can I sign off that the Bible is error-free when I haven't actually checked all of these uh, issues? And uh, more than that, it's like, how can I, in one lifetime, check all these issues? It, it kind of felt to me like somebody was handing me a dictionary and saying. Yes or no, do you think that the Webster's Dictionary is error-free? And I'd be, look at that and be like, well, I don't know. I mean, this is a lot of pages. This is a lot of information. And I lack the expertise to go through it. And I don't even know if I would know an error when I see it. Like this is, I mean, there's so many disciplines of, of knowing languages, knowing ancient culture, knowing world history, knowing archaeology. Like how could I prove that all of the scriptures are error-free. And so I, I kind of felt like all the burden of proof was on me and it was a burden I couldn't bear. Um, and so that's kind of the other side of the air, the agony of inerrancy. Like I felt like I wanted my teachers to be under that pressure so that I would have got a better product uh, when I studied. But at the same time, I didn't really want to feel that. And uh, it was, you know, difficult for me when I you know was faced with that. Um, 
what I ended up doing is I ended up just saying, look, um, I don't know the answers to all these questions, but as far as I know, I have not seen um, definitive proof that there are errors in the Bible. And so as, you know, it's like you know, somebody hands me a dictionary and says, this is error free. It's like, well, I haven't seen the errors. If you show me some errors, maybe that'll change my mind, but I'm going with the assumption. I'm going to work with the assumption it's error free. And um, the other thing that um, kind of enabled me to sign it, made me be able to sign it in a good conscience, was to say, I think what people are getting at when, they, when they're talking about inerrancy is um, inspiration, verbal. And, and there's two words that we often tie to inspiration, verbal and plenary inspiration. Inspiration just means that it's God that is breathing, that is speaking these words. And verbally speaking them so that, so that the very words of scriptures in plenary, I forget exactly what the definition of plenary means, but the, the, the very words of scriptures can be mined for truth. Uh, we're not picking and choosing here. The whole, you know, as it says in 1 Timothy 3.16, all of scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. And again, I mean, this is, this is my life. I I, I read the Bible every day. Every time that I hit an issue in culture or in life or in raising kids, I say, what does the Bible say? And um, the Bible um, pushes me to directions and to ideas and to issues that I don't, I don't care about or I would go the other way. And the Bible pushes me back and says, no, you can't believe that. You have to believe this. I feel like the Bible it is a force, not just something that I use, uh, that I'm Lord over, but the, the scriptures are Lord over me and they tell me what to do, what to believe. Um, and I think that's what what people are getting at when they're saying, do you believe in inerrancy? Do you believe in inspiration? Um, and this really comes out when there's a major issue. And, you know, for a while on my blog, I was really debating um, egalitarianism versus complementarianism. That's basically talking about the role of women in the church um, people outside the church might be more familiar with terms like feminism, chauvinism. Um, so this is a big issue in the church, obviously, because um, you know the Bible has some very clear things to say about gender and how God created that. And our culture, I mean, this is a real rubbing point with our culture and feminism. And so um, when you are debating with somebody on an issue like this that rubs everybody the wrong way, um, pretty soon you'll see how what authority they place on scriptures. If somebody is saying, well, scriptures say this, but you know, it was written a long time ago. It was in this context. It, the culture doesn't apply to us anymore. Um, you know, this was written by, we don't, we don't really take Paul very seriously. We mostly just love read Jesus. You know, Paul's kind of, well, he's, he's a rabbi. Oh, he's too, too Greek and platonic. Oh, he's this. Oh, he's that. We don't really bother with Paul, but we just take Jesus and Jesus didn't really say much about that. Um, if we have this attitude, then it's pretty clear that we have a fairly low view of scriptures. And whether or not we say that we believe in inerrancy or inspiration or whatever, it's like, well, if, if scriptures aren't at some point pushing us to believe something that we wouldn't naturally believe or that we're not comfortable believing, um, then it, it's difficult for me to see how they are an authority in our lives. And today, I mean, the big issue is homosexuality. And I mean, this is an issue that is like, there's so much pressure in culture um, to believe one thing. And the only reason that I or you know most other people would believe that homosexuality is a sin, that it's not healthy, that it's not a good lifestyle choice, is because the Bible says so. And that's why, um, I mean, this is kind of a watershed issue. This is kind of a, a litmus test, as I argued at one point on my blog. You can, you can kind of tell if somebody is... Um, conservative orthodox based on this issue and also you can really tell you know what their view of scripture is and um, it just so happens that I'm going to a an Anglican church right now and I'm Mennonite um, and Anglican is about as far away from Mennonite as you can get uh, and we heard about this church we were kind of looking for a new church and there's other things associated with that we need a place to find fellowship for our kids and things like that but you know I heard okay this is a great church but why would I go there, you know, because Anglican, I'm Mennonite, doesn't really 
Connect, and I heard that um, it was the ANIC, so the Anglican Network in Canada. And I heard that um, they used to be part of the Anglican Church, but the Anglican Church um, basically officially embraces homosexuality as a valid lifestyle, and they, you know, they have vicars that are homosexual, and they embrace it and teach it from the pulpit, and it's completely, you know, the Anglican Church completely endorses this now. And the ANIC, with much sacrifice, they left all the buildings behind, they left all the money behind, but they just, a few people left and said, we can't endorse this because the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. And so at great personal sacrifice and with amidst great derision and insults, they left to form the ANIC. And when I heard that, when I heard that this was the issue, was over homosexuality, I was like, well, okay, you know, we can go there. I don't have any further questions, really. To me, it was like, that's all I need to know. Just tell me where you stand on this issue, and that's all I need to know um, about your view of scriptures and their priority in your life. So, um, didn't mean to get distracted on that, but I think it illustrates well. Um, fundamentalists have kind of clung to a few words like inerrancy, the virgin birth, um, salvation by grace through faith, because, or a few phrases, because um, liberalism is so large and complicated and it, it's swirling and, and shifting and moving and morphing, and it's hard to know exactly what we're fighting against. Um, and so we've kind of clung to a few words and said, well, do you believe in inerrancy or not? And it's kind of like, if you don't, then you're not one of us. Um, but I think what we're really getting at is, how do you treat scriptures? And that is a little bit harder to to flesh out. Um, I mean, somebody, everybody says, oh, I have a high view of scriptures, of course. Um, but how does that actually work out in your life? And uh, so I felt like I have a very high view of scriptures. They are the authority of my life. They are the word of God to me. Therefore, I believe in inerrancy. I can sign this document, even though I'm not sure that I can prove, you know, that all the errors, supposed errors in the Bible are not true errors. So I would recommend that to you. Since that time, I've kind of got some more sophisticated answers to um, whether or not I believe in inerrancy. And I'd like to pass these on to you. The reason I, my motivation in this is because I think that um, inerrancy, it, it can be, and, I, and I've been talking about this, kind of like the, the question, are you in or out? So kind of like... Um, um, I don't want to say a witch hunt, but like a, an inquisition question, like, do you believe in inerrancy? And that can cause stress and agony and tension. And, and so that's, that's important and that's difficult and that's, uh, that's one thing. But another part that's difficult about inerrancy is it's kind of a pillar of our faith. And we've been told that the Bible is inerrant and we in the evangelical church have kind of really, this is foundational to who we are. This is central. This is in all of our doctrinal statements. This is what we teach in the church. This is everything. And so it's this pillar of our faith. And if that pillar starts to crack, crumble, shift, wobble, it feels like the whole faith is just going to topple over. And so now I want to try and help you. Um, when you feel like that, that pillar is starting to waffle and move and shift um, as it probably will in future podcasts, because I'm going to be looking at uh, the evidence and the truth, um, liberal scholarship on Christianity. Um, and you're going to hear things that you haven't heard before, and you're going to see scriptures in a new way. And it's, gonna, it's going to, um, to potentially destabilize you. And so I want to give you some, some help. What do you do when, when, when one of your foundational pillars starts to move like that? Um, first of all, um, maybe I could say why, why I feel like it's okay for me to do this. And uh, it's against, and I know in the introduction I kind of went over this, but it's really against the modus operandi of the church. Uh, I mean, in the church, we really don't like to shake people's faith. We really just like to, to preach the truth as it is and not mess with people's faith. Um, but we're in a critical age, and people hear with critical ears. And I think at some point, people need to be poked a little bit, and, and people's faith needs to grow. And that's why I named this title, uh, this podcast, No Longer Be Children, because I think at some point, 
if you don't ever look critically and with mature eyes at your faith and ask the big questions, then you're basically like a child that can be blown around by any wave of doctrine, like um, like the young man that I talked about that was potentially his faith was destroyed by the Da Vinci Code. I'm not sure if that was was the whole picture, but I want to produce a more uh, mature faith in you. Um, I mentioned this before, uh, but uh, I've been listening to William Lane Craig, and I, I recommend him to you as a great uh, resource. He's got tons of podcasts online. Um, turn this off and go listen to w- William Lane Craig. There you go. That's what you need to do. Um, he's so much got stuff that's so much better than mine. Um, but he talks about a double warrant for faith, and I want to have a podcast on this in the future, so I won't go too much in depth. Um, but, you know, we have basically our mind and, and, is that how I want to say it? A double warrant, meaning there are some things that we know. I was going to divide this with mind and heart, but that's not quite right. Uh, and we, we divide things there too often. There's some things we know because we can prove them. And there's some things we know just because we know. And, uh, Alvin Plantinga, who is the mentor of William Lane Craig, helped him with his, or was his mentor during his doctoral thesis and and probably the leading apologist in the world, Christian apologist, uh, said there's some things that are properly basic. You just know something is true. Um, Some things you you know because you've you've worked them out for yourself and you've proved them, but some things you just know it's true. And whatever the facts are, you know that it's true or false, Um, such as the number two. You, You can't prove the number two. You use the number two to prove other things, but if you somebody asks, well, how do you know that these two items are represented by the number two and the idea of two you just like well it's just true that's just it's just how it is um in other schools of thought you might speak about this as an axiom axioms are like the the basic building blocks of information and you use axioms to to build more complex thoughts but at some point you can't question everything there's certain things you just know um and uh, Alvin Plantinga said, for a Christian who has the Holy Spirit in their hearts, uh, belief in God is a properly basic belief. It's just one of these things that you just know. And it's legitimate for you just to know. You just know that God exists. You just know that He's saved. You just know that you're His child. Um, and you don't need proof. You don't need evidence. Now, proof and evidence are helpful. Um, and so that, and that's a second. It's like you have two legs. Um, so if one of them you know, breaks, you, at least you have the other leg. When, when you're healthy, you have both legs, you're very stable, you're very secure. But if the, if the leg of proof is broken or it's weak or it's wobbly or you're working things out, you can still rely on the fact that you just know it's a properly basic belief. It's, it's true without you necessarily knowing how to prove it. Um, Alvin Plantinga gives the example of uh, somebody who's accused of a crime and they're in a courtroom and all the evidence is against them. Your fingerprints were there. Your DNA were there. You know, eyewitnesses say, say you were there. You had motive. You had opportunity. Uh, the weapon was found in your apartment. Blah, 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 blah. All the proof is there. All right? So in judge, jury, everybody is convinced that this person did it. But the person knows they didn't do it. They, they have memories. They, and all the proof can say one thing. But they say, well, I know that this isn't true. And it's, it's, in that sense, a properly basic belief. He can't prove it, but he knows it. Um, and Karl Barth uh, has another um, helpful example. He was illustrating something different, but um, he said, uh, if you ask a child, who is your mother? And the child will you know, point to their mom and say, this is my mother. And if you ask the child, how do you know that she's your mother? The child will probably look at you in confusion and kind of be like, I don't know. I don't know how to prove that. And you might then say to them, well, she must not be your mother if you can't prove it. And the child would say, well, I'm not sure about that, but I know she's my mom. And Karl Barth's, the, where he went with that was to say the Bible is always the church's mother. And, and the church always looks to the Bible and says, I don't know, I can't always prove it, but that's my mom. Um, and so I would take that same analogy just to say, look, if... You can't prove um, the truth of, if you can't prove scientifically that Christianity is true, you can always just fall back on just saying, I just know that it's true. Um, That being said, there's certain things that will come against that belief, uh, the feeders they're called, to prove, no, well, look, here's another woman, 
and this woman says she's your mom too. So here's proof, you know, and then the, the kid is going to be like, wah! And, and so there's evidence that might come against Christianity to try and disprove uh, this belief. Um, and that at that point, we either cling to our belief and say, no, but I still know this is still properly basic for me. Or else we find a way to disprove um, the defeaters. So anyways, um, I said I wasn't going to go into it, but I did go into it. Um, the end point of that is when you get to stabilize, just fall back on Jesus. Um, the other thing to do when in doubt, and this is what I'm going to continually doing as, this is what I have been doing as I've been learning more and more about how the Bible was written, is we just expand the category of human agency. So we know um, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, where is that Bible verse? Um, where are my Bible verses? 2 Peter 3, wherever it talked about, I should pause it really, that would, uh, 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16 says um, that no, no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation, but men move from God spoke. And um, in, in 1 Timothy 3, 16, sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 16, it also says that um, all scriptures are inspired by God. So, there's, there's a sense in which there's humans involved, and there's a sense in which God is involved by pushing people along, inspiring them. And so, whenever we get to a point where it's like, well, this is a, a more complex picture than I thought, it's like, well, okay, well, that was inspired too. For example, when we're growing up, we tend to think, well, the whole first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, were all written entirely by Moses. And you might read those five books and, and at some point you realize, well, how would Moses write, you know, and then Moses died and was buried. I mean, clearly somebody else was involved in that. So there was an authorship and then there was redaction. There was somebody, an editor after the fact, and for some reason we call editors redactors um, in, in this discussion. And so there was redaction after the fact. Somebody added that Moses died and, and was buried, likely. If you're, you know, some people are really, really strict and they're like, no, Moses found out before the fact that he was going to die. And so he wrote in there, all right, whatever. Um, but uh, we, we can just expand that and say, well, there was, th there were sources that probably predated Moses. He probably had oral traditions or he had books to work with. And then he wrote out, you know, most of the Pentateuch. And then somebody after him took up the Pentateuch and edited it and added in the part about him being the most humble person on earth and about him dying and, and, and different things like this. Um, and so that's a bigger picture. It's not just one person writing, um, but it's, it's a more realistic picture. And actually that's how most books are written. I mean, most people don't just sit down unless they're writing complete fiction. Um, most people that are writing something like a historical work, they have sources that come before them, obviously, or else it would, you know, be just a fiction of their own imagination. And after they write it, you know, they have an editor that's an expert in various fields that'll come along and edit it and, and, and make it, you know, polish it up. And so the fact that there's more human agent, that it's a more complex process, um, shouldn't mess with our, our belief that this, these are human people that are inspired by God. It just means the original sources and the author and the redactor or redactors were all inspired by God. The whole process is inspired by God. So we can just expand this, the human agency side of things uh, to include things. Um, the more complex picture that uh, liberal scholarship is going to give us about how scriptures were written. At some point, and there's kind of a line where it's like, well, you can expand, expand, expand to a certain point. But at some point, it's like, all right, well... It's hard to hold on anymore to the word inerrant. Um, if, <laughs> you know, if all this crazy stuff that liberals are saying um, is true. And to me, the, the line is, you know, um, one of my professors said that uh, she, she believed that most of the prophetic books, especially Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and other books, were quote-unquote prophetic books. And I forget the term she used, um, but they were prophecy after the fact. Let's see if I can find that term. Yeah, so the term she used was ex eventu, E-X space E-V-E-N-T-U. 
and that's prophecy after the fact. To me, that's like, okay, but it says it's a prophecy if they're not actually prophesying, if they're saying in retrospect these things are going to happen when it's after the fact. It seems like that's dishonest, and that's a lie. Um, also, um, you know, a lot of liberal scholars would say that some documents that are attributed to Paul weren't actually written by Paul, especially First and Second Timothy and Titus. Well, if they say that Paul wrote them, but Paul didn't actually write them, uh, I, I mean, it's one thing to say, well, you know, certain Old Testament books, they're like, you know, like Proverbs is, is clearly a collection of sayings from multiple people. And it'll even say that there's, you know, this isn't, they're not all written by Solomon. Some of them are introduced, you know, to my son, so-and-so, I forget his name. But, you know, some, some Old Testament books are, are explicitly kind of a conglomerate, conglomeration of, of sayings and writings. But if it says, you know, this, this letter is written by Paul and it's not written by Paul, um, then that's, a, that's an error. That's a falsehood. And so if God's going to be using that, and I'm going to say, okay, I, I believe that this is still God's word, and somehow the whole process is somehow still blessed and still used. I'm not sure that I'm that I would believe in inerrancy anymore. I think that would be more of a neo-orthodox or a Bartian perspective um, that that was talked about in the first podcast on that, on the Chicago statement. So I'm not there, uh, but you know a lot of people that I respect and appreciate are there. Uh, that they would say, well, there's you know the Bible's you know full of errors basically, but this is where God meets us. Um, so what do you do when in doubt, um, we can, we can inflate the category of, of human agency to a certain extent when we get beyond a certain extent, such as, um, you know, spurious documents or prophecy after the fact, it seems like we can't really use the word inerrant anymore. Um, but we might use the word, use some different word to mean that it's still God's word. Um, I appreciate the fact that neo-orthodoxy is there as an option because um, if I can't hold on to um, scriptures being inerrant, if, if there's something in the Bible where, you know, there's irrefutable proof given to me um, that, you know, the Bible says X and all the proof from science, archaeology, linguistics, whatever says not X, and I'm like, I absolutely cannot overcome this. There, this is definitive proof that there is error in the Bible. I'm not going to fall all the way down to being an atheist. What I would do is I would fall into the middle category of being neo-orthodox and say, all right, well, if this is truly an error in the Bible, if, if this is truly a mistake or, or, or you know, somebody was lying, somebody was saying that they were Paul, but they weren't really Paul or something like that, this is still God's word, and God still used that, and God still meets with us here. And when we preach, God still shows up and transforms hearts, which is basically the, the Bartian perspective. And so I appreciate the fact that Karl Barth and neo-Orthodox ideas um, kind of provide a safety net for me. And this actually enables me, I mean, if you think about, you know, working on the Golden Gate Bridge um, and, and somebody's up there hammering away or, or using a wrench or whatever. Um, all the way at the bottom, uh, there's the water, and if you fall that far, you're gonna, it's going to be hard like concrete. You're just going to splat, right? So he's got a safety net underneath him. The point is not to fall into the safety net. The, the point is not to fall. But the fact that the safety net is there is going to enable him to work with more confidence, with more ease, so that he doesn't fall. And... Um, what I have found is that sometimes we as evangelicals, we have such a, we're clinging so tightly to inerrancy, inerrancy, inerrancy. There could be no mistakes. There could be no mistakes. They were kind of like, like ostriches with our head in the sand. Like we, we don't want to look at the facts. We don't want to ask the questions because what if we find an error? And, and, and then if we find an error, um, well, we have very little support. It's kind of like this secret thing. Like, oh, I found a mistake. I found a problem. Like, what am I going to do? Uh, and I went through this when I, when I found an apparent discrepancy with um, Judas. Um, in Matthew, it says one thing about how he died. In Acts, it says something else about how he died. So it was like, ah, like what do I do with this error in the Bible? 
um, because I didn't feel like I had a safety net. I felt like if there is a mistake in the Bible, I need to become an atheist. That's the only intellectually rational thing to do. Um, and so I would give this to you that um, if that there can be a safety net. I'm not, I'm not encouraging anybody to go there because I think it's a less helpful way to look at the Bible. But I'm giving it to you as a tool because if um, there is a point where you absolutely can't, um, you can't surmount a problem, an issue, you don't need to become an atheist. You can become you know, a Bartian or you can have a more nuanced idea about how the Bible was written. Again, expanding the human, the human component of scriptures to say God used this, um, but you know it was just more human than we had thought. Um, as well, uh, William Lane Craig talks about how um, inerrancy should be one portion of our faith, kind of like a spider web. And a spider web, if you break one strand, it's not all going to fall apart. And um, we need to have more than one thing going for us. And again, you can have that simple, properly basic faith that you fall back on. You just say, I know that I know that I know that Jesus exists, that he loves me, that he lives in me. That's one thing that you can always fall back on. Get some other things in your arsenal of information, such as the proof for the resurrection of Jesus, um, the proof for um, creation out of nothing, um, the ontological, ontological argument, um, the Kalam cosmological argument, uh, the, and other things that I'm going to talk about in future podcasts, or you can listen to William Lane Craig or um, who else? Uh, um, well, Tim Keller's got some great stuff. Um, Lee Strobel has a lot of really great, very readable, very well-researched um, books. And so... Um, have other things going for you so that even if you know you, you found find some new information, you find, oh, I can't, I, I have to let go of the belief that scriptures are inerrant. Have other things that you can cling to to say, well, okay, scriptures might be might have errors, but maybe I'll go to kind of a Bartian, like they're full of, you know, scriptures are human, imperfect document, but God shows up when we preach it. Maybe I'll go there for now, but I still know that Jesus resurrected from the dead. I still know that, you know, there is objective moral good in the world and the only way to, um, and that proves that God exists, etc. So have other things. Um, see this as a spider web instead of this is the one foundational pillar. If that one crumbles, then everything falls apart. Um, and the reason I keep saying this, I mean, there's a really famous example. There's a man named Bert Ehrman that keeps writing books about uh, how, basically anti-Christian books. And he studied at, uh, what was it, um, Moody Bible Institute, very, you know, fundamentalist, conservative. And then he studied at Princeton. And I think I talked about this in a, in a previous podcast on liberalism. And at Princeton, because he was studying, he was going deep, deep, deep into text criticism, into the ancient Greek, into uh, the history and the context of uh, the first century um, Jewish Christian scene. And he found one or two things where it was like the Bible said this, but historical research said this. And it's minor, trivial stuff. Something like, you know, so-and-so was high priest in this year, but according to the research, it was actually a year later that he was high priest. doesn't change the story, doesn't change anything, but it's just that means there's an error in scriptures. That means there's a problem. That means there's a mistake. And for him, his whole faith just fell apart and completely left him high and dry. And now he's, I'm not actually sure what else he did with his life, but he ended up becoming um, a, a well-known scholar in his own right. But he, he like continually is writing kind of anti-Christian stuff. Um, like he's kind of bitter against Christianity for the, the years he put in and felt like his faith fell apart. Um, so again, you don't have to fall. If inerrancy, if you can't hold on to inerrancy for whatever reason, you know, there's something in between. You can fall to Bart. Um, but, um, or, or you can just say, well, right now, I don't know. I don't know how, what to deal, what to do with this, but I still believe in inerrancy, uh, even though I don't know what to do with this issue. And the Chicago statement admitted that they said, you know, there's some issues we don't know what to do with. Um, and even though there's some issues that Christianity, uh, doesn't know what to do with, we still hold to inerrancy. We still believe that these will be resolved eventually. Um, 
And that all gets back to uh, my next point is keep it in perspective. You know, the, the broad story of the Bible is all historically verified. Um, we know that, um, create, that the universe came into being out of nothing. The universe is not eternal. Therefore, there had to be some sort of something that propelled everything into motion. Uh, so that right there is a huge deal. Um, when we get to, um, you know, known human history, um, which started around 6,000 years ago, 6,500 years ago, uh, this is when the invention of writing started. This is when we actually, um, this is, you know, before that we had prehistory. And that's um, another question. But everything in recorded history basically lines up with the Bible. We know that Ur um, existed in Mesopotamia where Abraham had his origins, and we know that Canaan exists, we know that Egypt exists, we know that uh, there were Israelites in Egypt about the time they were supposed to be there, we know that there were Israelites up in Canaan about the time that they were supposed to be there. Um, we know that there was something about worshipping Yahweh, the, the Jewish God, at the right time. There was also worship of other deities in the place. Um, we know now that King David existed, that his dynasty existed. We know a lot of the other kings in the north existed, Omri, uh, Ahab, and other kings. Um, we know very certainly we have a lot of information about the Assyrians, the Assyrian um, takeover of uh, northern Israel. That's all recorded in Assyrian, you know, it's, it's, it's written on the walls of their temples and, and things like that. We know a lot of information about the Babylonian deportation and them coming back and we know a lot about the intertestamental period from multiple sources uh, we know a lot about jesus he definitely existed he definitely taught he definitely uh healed had a, had a ministry of healing miracle working exorcisms he definitely 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 died on a roman cross at 33 a.d and the christians definitely had their origin uh because they believed jesus rose from the dead these are all concretely, irrefutably proven um, historical facts. And we know that the whole New Testament was written within the first century, within 70 years of the death of Jesus, within the right area, um, likely by, or within the Christian community. So that there, there's no, like, defeater. There's no, like, I mean, if, and I mentioned this before, sorry to repeat myself, I only have a few good examples. Um, but, like, if I was a Mormon, and, okay, so I have this burning in my bosom. I have a properly basic belief that, you know, the Book of Mormon is true. Um, I just know it's true. But when a defeater comes, like, okay, the Book of Mormon says that the 10 lost tribes of Israel are actually the Native American peoples in North America. I mean, that's pretty huge. Uh, that's a central tenet of, as far as I understand it, of the Book of Mormon and of Mormon belief. If that's not true, then a lot of things are going to start falling apart for me. Um, and it's very, I mean, from archaeology, from linguistics, from genetic studies, from all these things, there, there's no way that um, the uh, Caucasian Israelites from, uh, from, from the Near East ended up being the uh, Mongolian descendants of uh, North and South America. They're, you know, ethnically, genetically everything. They're different people. So that's, I mean, that, that really kind of like a bowling ball kind of knocks down a, a large component of the Muslim or the, the Mormon faith. But for us for, as Christians, there's no big deal like that. It's all in the tiny little details. It's all in the minor little, oh, he was a, a priest at this year instead of this year. Oh, they're called prefixes instead of governors. Oh, they didn't have prefix there. They had governors there. Oh, did this ancient city exist? Where did Jericho actually exist? What In what year was it destroyed? Was it destroyed in this year or that year? And so we need to keep it in, in perspective that, you know, the big, the things that affect the big story are all mostly verified as true. Otherwise, they're kind of, they're in, they're not, they're ambiguous. They're not proven or disproven. Um, and um, as well, I talked about, uh, a safety blanket kind of in between, a safety net of Bartianism. The other safety net is to say, look, even if we can't prove that the Bible is completely accurate, it's like accurate to uh, like a 100% accurate, like a spiritual kind of perfect word of God, no errors, nothing like that. It's still extremely accurate. It's still an extremely um, 
valuable historical book. People still read the Bible for uh, finding insights into what happened 4,000 years ago. Um, you know, a, a liberal person, a secular person would would not believe that Moses part of the Red Sea, but they would look at that as a valid and, and valuable source into ancient history, um, a powerful window into what actually happened. And certainly when it comes to Jesus, um, you know, we can really get all tied up in a knot about the fact that the Gospels, you know, um, tell a slightly different story uh, and, and some of the minor details about, you know, the, the roosters and the angels and, and the woman at the tomb don't quite line up. But if we're not looking at these as divine documents, but just simply as kind of human documents, we would say this is extremely good proof. I mean, these stories are basically the same. They're slightly different, which tells us that they're not just copying one another. These are coming from divergent sources. And, that, and, and so they're cor corroborating each other. And um, the fact that they're 98% in agreement and there's 2% disagreement, I mean, there's no stronger support for the fact that these things actually exist. Um, I mean, if you can just, for a second, step away from the question of inerrancy and say, you know, do we believe that um, Peter existed? Well, we have all this evidence from all these different sources that he existed, that he's a real historical person. You know, mentioned in Josephus, I believe, and in other places as well. Um, so we know he existed because there's so many sources. So because, you know, what, what if we couldn't believe that the Bible was inerrant anymore? So we fall down to the safety blanket of, well, we still know that the Bible is a, a valid and a usable historical record. And what is it doing? It's pointing us to Jesus. And in Jesus, we have access to God. It's giving us a reliable record of what Jesus said, of what Jesus did. Because I think that it is giving, and, and we're going to get into this with Jesus studies, but there have been three schools of Jesus studies. The first one basically denied everything about Jesus and said he's just a myth. Well, that was all overturned. That was all disproven. The second kind of said, well, forget about the miracles. Forget about um, uh, most of you know the supernaturalistic things he said and did. Well, that's kind of been overturned, and now we're coming around to where we're saying, you know what, most of what Christians have always believed about Jesus is true, except that we don't believe he's God. You know, from a secular perspective, you don't believe that, that Jesus is God, obviously. Um, but there's a high degree of certainty that Jesus actually said and did most of the things that are recorded in the Gospels, if we're looking at it from a secular, outside perspective. Um, and we as Christians... Um, this is a point that I really resisted when I was in seminary, and afterwards I kind of realized, oh, this is there, there's some truth here. Um, you know, my my neo-orthodox Bartian teacher said, "Look, Muslims call us the people of the book. We're not really the people of the book. We're the people of the person Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Muslims are the people of the book. For them, the Quran is the Word of God. For us, the the Bible points to Jesus." And I resisted this because I felt like, you know, they're neo-Orthodox. They're like, oh, it's a very human book. Oh, you know, there's, there's parts that aren't true and things like this. And I was like, well, look, if, if there's parts that... I just felt like it was a slippery slope. And it is a slippery slope uh, when you look at kind of the disciples of Bart. You know, Bart had a very high view of scriptures. And my teachers had a very high view of scriptures. But when you look at the disciples of their teachers, of, of those teachers... You know, somebody like Rob Bell is a, a modern-day student of neo-orthodoxy of Bart. And he has a very low view of scriptures. And if there's something he doesn't agree with, like homosexuality or women in the church or hell or something like that, he's like, well, whatever, throw it out. Um, very low view of scriptures. But I'm getting distracted here. Um, what my teacher said was, look, the Bible is there to point us to Jesus. So look to Jesus. And Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. And so I think that even if we get bumped down to the safety net of saying, well, maybe it's an imperfect document, but it's still a reliable guide and it's still historically you know, usable and, and helpful, it's still going to point us to Jesus. Um, again, I'm not encouraging anybody to see the Bible that way. I'm just saying it would be better for you to see the Bible that way than to fall all the way down to atheism. And I myself, I'm not there. I'm not at the safety net. I'm just saying it's helpful to have a safety net there. I don't know if that's... I feel like somebody's going to listen to this and say, 
you're encouraging us to be neo-orthodox and, and to, to doubt the Bible. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm saying have that foundation, that, that safety net there, that even if you, you can't cling to orthodox, orthodox belief, such as I do, that the Bible is inerrant and inspired, you're not going to fall all the way down to discounting everything, but just say, well, I still say that it points back to Jesus, and Jesus is the author and finisher of my faith. Um, all right, I've got three more points, and then we're done here. Um, William Lane Craig mentioned also, one thing you can do is just pick one issue. And again, getting back to the example of me sitting there agonizing over the question, do I believe in inerrancy or not? Feeling like, you know, somebody's handing me a dictionary and saying, is this error free or not? Um, pick an issue. You know, just first thing I would do if somebody seriously asked me that question is just flip it open, look at a page and say, looks good to me. Um, so seriously, pick an issue. And for me, the test case was um, Judas. How did Judas die? Did he buy a field? Did he hang himself? Um, did he ever repent of his of his sin? Because if you if you read in Matthew and if you read in Acts, it's it seems to be two very different accounts. And so the next podcast is going to be on that issue. But for me, that was a test case. And so pick a test case because you can't do all of them. Just pick one and research it. See what evangelicals have said. See what liberals have said. See what all the information is, and just research this one issue until you really know the truth, and then write a podcast on it, or a, a blog post. Um, and so just take one issue as an example, and that I found that helpful to me because I found that um, I could prove uh, that these... Also, um, you can just hold out faith that an issue will be resolved. And this is kind of what the Chicago Statement does, is to say, we don't know whether, you know, there, there's some issues that we don't know the answer to. You can just have faith even if you, you know, you study an issue and you get to the point where it's like, well, actually this is pretty strong proof that there's an error in the Bible. Does that mean you need to, to drop your belief in inerrancy? Um, you know, some people might say, well, you have to be intellectually honest. You know, maybe. But you can also just say, well, maybe someday this will be resolved. Maybe someday there, there, new evidence will come through, a new way of reading the Bible or a new way of reading the evidence that there won't actually be a conflict here. And I think that's what the Chicago Statement does, uh, what it lays out. And um, I think that provides us um, warrant and ability to believe in inerrancy while engaging with the real world of science and liberal science on the Bible and say, well, okay, there might be this issue, um, but I still believe that eventually it's going to get dealt with. And, and the final point, and this one kind of leads into that, is shifting the burden of proof. So one big issue, apparently, is uh, the dating of the destruction of Jericho. And Jericho is kind of a major city uh, that was often inhabited. It's a strategic location in, in Palestine or Canaan. And it was often destroyed. But uh, in, the archaeological evidence seems to indicate that it was destroyed at the wrong time. And it was not left uninhabited as it's recorded in the Bible, as far as I understand. So, you know, this is where... Um, got a book somewhere. I'm not sure if I still have it on my shelf, but it's like uh, pers like four perspectives on inerrancy or something. And the conservative guy, I think it was Norm Geisley or somebody like that, was saying, well, I just believe that eventually this issue will be resolved. And of course, the neo-orthodox guys and the liberal guys were like, oh, come on, that's a cop-out. That's cheap. That's cheating. Um, but if, if you've been sticking with the Christian scene for a while, as I have, um, the Jericho issue used to be a big deal in the 60s. I wasn't around the 60s, but, but I'm aware of what was written then. And then sometime in the 80s or something, I might have the dating wrong, um, it was discovered that, oh, no, actually the dating lines up now. And then a little bit afterwards, it was like, oh, no, more research says that it doesn't line up now. And then there's more research, and oh, it lines up again, and now it doesn't. Uh, and so, I mean, similar to climate studies, obviously, uh, honestly, I mean, I look at, I hear... Some people saying one thing, some people saying another, and I'm just like, I don't know. You guys are both claiming to be experts, and you keep changing your mind. I don't know what to believe. Um, and in a similar way, I mean, archaeology is a very young science, and it's, I mean, it basically just start. people just basically started digging around the dirt like 100 years ago, maybe 150 now. It's a very young science, and they're still discovering stuff. And 
you know, with all the stuff going on in, in Syria, which is where most of the artifacts are, um, you know, with, with ISIS and everything, I mean, archaeology is, is off the table uh, right now. And, you know, theories about what, what people find, ancient languages are still being decoded. Some of the oldest and most important languages still haven't been uh, decoded yet. Um, and so, you know, these things are still in flux. And, and I don't think it's as crazy as uh, some people think it is to just say, well, maybe this will get, get worked out eventually. Um, and so I think we can shift the burden of proof. Um, it would be a really bold statement to say, I can prove, I believe with absolute certainty that, um, you know, things went down in Jericho exactly like it says in the Bible, at such and such a date, at such and such a place, and, and this happened, then it was uninhabited. I mean, that would, it would take so much proof for me to say that, and, and I don't think that kind of proof is available. But it would also take a lot of proof to say definitively, absolutely, with 100% certainty, I know that it didn't happen this way, that the archaeological evidence definitely proves that it couldn't have happened according to how the Bible relates it. And so it's, I mean, it kind of sounds childish, but this is something that in, in debates you, have, you do often, you know, somebody says, well, you know, how can you prove that the Bible is true? And you say, well, how can you prove that it's false? And all of a sudden, you know, you sit back in your chair and say, well, prove to me that the Bible is false. And, and they're like, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, creation, evolution. Uh, uh, um, and, and so I think we can take that posture, um, at least in our own internal dialogue. I think we can take that posture to just say, well, I haven't received any information that definitively proves that the Bible is not true, that there's an error in the Bible. And furthermore, I'm not sure that anybody could prove. I mean, even something like the dating of Jericho. Yeah, they're pretty sure these days that they have the right date and it absolutely does not line up with what the scriptures say. Well, is it possible that there was more than one city named Jericho in the day? Is it possible that the actual site has been lost to us? Is it possible that... Um, as we've tried to date um, the, the conquest of Canaan, the immigration of the Israelite people, that we were off in our dates. And, and maybe it does line up in some way. Is it possible the archaeologists actually did just make a mistake again and um, they have the wrong layer, the wrong strata? So I think we can legitimately just shift the burden of proof and say, well, you know, prove it. And... Um, up to now, I haven't seen strong enough evidence to um, let go of my belief that um, scriptures are inspired and inerrant. Okay, so that more or less wraps up what I want to say about the agony of inerrancy. And um, when in doubt, as we continue the next stop on our journey, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna share my uh, paper on Judas. How did he die and did he buy a field? And uh, if you want to read ahead, you can look at the account in Matthew and in Acts and wrestle with the apparent conflict there. Um, so you can look at Matthew 23 and Acts 1, 18 to 19 to kind of wrestle with the apparent contradiction there to uh, prepare you for that dialogue if you would like. Or you can just wait and enjoy it with me. And uh, where we're going to go next is we're going to talk about um, lower criticism and the dating of the New Testament. And then we're going to talk about um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes, and the dating of the Old Testament. And then we're going to talk about uh, higher criticisms, um, X, or it's not X, but Q, and uh, the Gospels, um, and uh, the, you know, the, the pastoral epistles, and how Paul apparently didn't write them, and, and what the, the proof and the evidence is there. Then we're going to go to some pretty exciting stuff, which is Jesus studies and see how really Jesus studies really prove um, that, uh, that Jesus existed, that he taught, that he lived, that he performed miracles, etc. And we're going to look at what William Lane Craig has to say about um, that there's really strong evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Um, and you can actually see that even from a liberal perspective. And then... Um, Eventually, we're going to get, although I have more research to do on my own, but I have, we're going to get to higher criticism and looking at the Old Testament. So you may have heard of JEPD theory, um, multiple source criticism theory of the Old Testament. So we're going to take an honest and a vigorous look at that and see, um, see 
what, what to do with that. And we're going to take our head out of the sand and see what the truth is. And we're going to we're, we're going to see how how strong the Bible is. Not that we're testing it, but we're we're going to find out more information so that we can coherently share this with um, informed intellectuals and informed seekers. Because honestly, people read stuff. People read today, uh, and they're not just interested in an emotional faith. They they do want Jesus in their heart, but they need to intellectually understand and believe as well. And uh, so that's where we're going next. And I hope that you will join us on the journey, Lord Jesus. I just thank you that. We can know in our hearts, and, and you make yourself so clear and apparent to us when we ask you to come and, um, and live in us. And I thank you too, Lord, that you've given us minds and that we can use our minds to also find the truth and the evidence. Um, thank you that you've given us a good word, or that you've given us the Bible, a word that is true and that is living and, and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, you would lead me to the right resources and that you continue to give me clarity of thought so that I can share um, these facts about the Christian faith and uh, the assurance we can have that our Bible is reliable. So thank you, Lord, and uh, Jesus' name, amen.